Let us prepare our hearts as we pray together. Holy and awesome God, we pray that you would now uh, send us your spirit very specifically to illumine your word. We acknowledge again that we are not able to understand your word apart from the work of the spirit. Thank you that we have been given the mind of Christ and you have given us the spirit. That uh, the secret wisdom that you destined for your people is available to us in your word. You've invited us to read it, to hear it, to understand it, and you have given us the illumination and the help that we need. Thank you that among many other things you have ordained the, the, the worship act called preaching to proclaim that word, to give your people light and direction and wisdom. Thank you that the law of the Lord is perfect and restores the soul, that your statutes are trustworthy and make us wise in our simplicity, that your precepts are right and bring joy to the heart. Your commandments are radiant and enlighten the eyes. It establishes the fear of the Lord in us and that your ordinances are sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold, that by them we are warned and in keeping them there is great reward. And so, Lord, with the psalmist, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in your sight. You are our Lord. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And so we come to you with expectant hearts. Thank you that you are a good shepherd who feeds your people. You lead us in green pastures. You make us to lie down, Father. And you lead us in the pathways of righteousness for your own name's sake. So all of those things, what they mean for each one of us this morning, you know better than we do ourselves. And so we pray that simultaneously you'll be able to work in each of our hearts according to the needs that you see there in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you know the name of Glenn Beck. He's one of the most influential of the conservative commentators, both in radio and television south of the border. He's a brilliant analyst, regardless of what we might think of his particular viewpoint. And in recent weeks, uh, in his 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock hour on Fox News, he's been giving some very intriguing analysis where he's been comparing what has been going on in, in, in the U.S. politics, especially in some of Obama's politics, and he has compared them with what Hugo Chavez has been doing in uh, Venezuela. Now, he's a little bit over the top when it comes to his emotions and his uh, ex- facial expressions and whatnot, but uh, nonetheless, uh, his analysis seems extremely uh, well thought through and persuasive. So it may well be that there are strong conspiratorial elements uh, in what is going on in a highly democratic White House with a very strong democratic majority both in the Senate and in the House. Now his purpose of course is to awaken uh, America. But what does that have to do with you and me right here? Uh, Well in some general sense what happens south of the border tends to affect our country quite a bit. But even more to the point it does raise the question How do we respond? How are we supposed to respond in the face of seemingly accurate and insightful analysis that might suggest that we can be victims of all kinds of backroom dealings and shenanigans and conspiracies in in, in the realms of politics and uh, business? Not surprisingly, although it still amazes us each time, a book written 2,800 years ago by the prophet Isaiah speaks to those kinds of issues as well. Let me just quickly uh, recap what we learned last week. Uh, We saw that uh, Israel under uh, Judah under Ahaz's leadership crossed the point of no return. Faced with a prospective attack from an alliance between Syria and Israel from the northern kingdom, rather than trust God, they decided to go 
and rely upon the, uh, the big guy, Assyria, that was threatening them anyway. And Isaiah warned them, he said, you have crossed the point of no return. His encouragements and exhortation to King Ahaz and the nation to be careful and calm and courageous and stand by faith fell upon deaf ears. And so he pronounced the coming judgment upon them. Not only will Assyria destroy Israel and uh, Syria as he promised, they will also attack Judah. So that's the background. Let's pick up the story in chapter 8, verses 11 to 15. For the Lord spoke thus to me, this is Isaiah speaking, with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a share, snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. This, this picture of God speaking to Isaiah with a strong hand upon him is some, conscious of the picture at least for me how sometimes parents might speak to adult sons and daughters putting both their hands on their shoulders looking at them in the face and speaking to them seriously. It's not as if we are angry with them at that time but we are wanting to communicate to them that what we are saying to them is serious and urgent and is worthy of attention. And specifically God is saying to Isaiah, don't be taken in by what the people are saying. Don't buy into their ideas and analysis. Don't call conspiracy what they're calling conspiracy. The thing that struck me was his, his words, God warned me. It's, it struck me as significant that Isaiah needed to be warned. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't think that. We say, well, yeah, of course the people are going astray. They needed to be warned, but Isaiah was God's messenger. He was proclaiming the warning. Why did he need to be warned? I think it drives home to us the fact that he and us today, leaders, are quite susceptible, if we're not careful, to be swayed by popular opinion and and, and analysis, so that our hearts can run away with them in that same direction. And specifically, God says to him two things. You need to focus on the Lord of hosts. And him alone you shall regard as holy. The Lord of hosts is a title of God that occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament. Mostly in Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The prophets who dealt primarily with the upcoming exile. And Ezekiel of course was the prophet of the exile himself. And it is appropriate for that time. Because it was all these marauding armies. First Assyria and then Babylon. That were the big world powers. Yet the Lord of hosts. And Peterson translates it, the Lord of angel armies, is is what the word really means. It it speaks of God as one who has at his command legions of angels, and he can mobilize them anytime he wants to. And later on in Isaiah, we will see that's exactly what he does when Assyria comes to attack them finally. It's, It's a military title. Very relevant to their particular situation. He says, him you should focus on. And then the word holy, him you should regard as holy. We learned a year ago in our studies on, uh, on holiness that one of the ideas of holiness is that of being set apart, of God being unique, uh, totally other, in a class by himself. And so when those two titles are combined in the, in the context that we see in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, when Judah is under threat of military attack, it is God saying to Isaiah, the only one who is worthy of trust is this God of the angel armies. He is the one you need to look to, not to what the people are saying and calling things conspiracy and whatnot. 
If you do, if you focus on him, you will experience him as a sanctuary, as a refuge, as a hiding place. I guess in a word what God is saying to Isaiah is that in the face of these conspiracies, and by the way, this was a real conspiracy. Israel and Syria were in fact plotting against Judah. So it wasn't an imaginary thing. He said in the face of these real conspiracies, God is calling Isaiah and Christian leaders today not to stick their heads in the stand and refuse to engage meaningfully with real problems that are going on around us, but to also make sure that our hearts are rooted in God of the angel armies as the only one who is worthy of our trust. I guess there's an attitude that says, regardless of what is going on around me, regardless how serious some of these things may be, I dare not overlook the God who is the Lord of all of these things. I cannot remove him from the equation. So Christian leaders today, translating that in vernacular, may be are the kind of men and women who need to say, yes, this is a world that is full of terrorists and greedy bankers and unstable financial systems. Uh, and there are all kinds of shenanigans that may be going on in the White House and down south here where we are. But I dare not overlook the God who is the God of the terrorists, the God of the bankers and the God of the politicians. He is the one I need to fear. It is the fear of God that stabilizes. The fear of man sets our heart shaking like trees in the wind. That we looked at last week. The fear of God stabilizes. John Oswald, who wrote one of the commentaries on Isaiah that I've been using for this over the last year, tells a very interesting little story about a business, Christian businessman who had a contract from the government to manufacture certain boats. And of course, a government inspector showed up and said to him, look, if you'll pay me so much money under the table, uh, I will allow you to build these boats to much lower specifications and I'll pass them all, which means the bottom line for your company will be really good. Of course, he also gave a threat. He said, if you don't do this, I will not pass your boats. I will not say that they pass inspection. You're going to go bankrupt. The, the, the businessman's owner to the inspector was, I fear God, so I don't fear you. Well, what the, what the inspector did, true to his word, was to refuse to pass these boats, even though they were built to specifications. The company almost went bankrupt, until at the very last minute, some foreign official, who happened to come across one of these boats that had now been thrown aside, was so impressed with the quality that he gave them a huge order. That the key line is what? I fear God, so I do not fear you. It is the fear of God that made him a sanctuary in a time when he could have been destabilized. It happens in big things like military threats. It happens in small things or relatively small things like companies needing, facing threats from corrupt inspectors. And of course the Bible also tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So not only does God become a sanctuary, He gives to leaders the kind of wisdom that they need to lead their people or lead their companies, whatever setting we're in. Now Isaiah was also warned about the consequences of not trusting God. If we're going to wring our hands over surface realities and issues, while ignoring the grandeur of God, He is going to become an obstacle that we will stumble over. You see, every one of us is going to experience God either as a sanctuary or as a stumbling block. We will all encounter Him one way or another as the glue that holds everything together by making a place for Him or by ignoring Him, finding all of life going askew and becoming prey to every new fear that comes along and therefore making unwise decisions. Let me read that for you again. 
We will all encounter him one way or another. As the glue that holds everything together by making a place for him. Or by ignoring him finding all of life going askew. And becoming prey to every new fear that comes along. And therefore making wrong decisions. You see, if we do not put God in his rightful place, it is not just that we lose out on the blessings of God's presence. He himself becomes the active hindrance to all of our plans. Sometimes you say, that doesn't put him in a very good light. Some of us have had experience as authority figures, often parents, who, who, who act in this way. I'll give you this if you do this, but if you don't do this, I'm going to interfere with your plans. So is God no better than that kind of parent? Well, no, no, that's not what's going on at all. You know, let me give you something completely different. <laughs> in our, our, our bedroom, we have the, the bed frame. has got the little steel thing that sticks out about a couple of inches. Every one of you know what that's like when you stick your shin on that, right? So in the middle of the night when I'm stumbling on my way to the washroom, if I don't take that piece into account, I'm going to trip over it. It's a reality. It's sitting there. I have to take it into account. That's what he's talking about here. God's not a petulant parent who doesn't get his own way and gets angry at us. No, no. He says, I am the central dominating feature of reality, whether you like it or not. And so if you don't take me into account, there are certain consequences. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the only one worthy of trust. And you don't put your trust in me, you're going to trip over me. That's what he's saying. So he'll either be a stumbling block or he will be a stepping stone of the sanctuary for us. Okay, this is God's warning to Isaiah. His encouragement and his warning. How does Isaiah respond? Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given to me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah's response is twofold. First of all, he says, bind up the testimony. Disciples, remember, his preaching was going to harden people. We learned that in chapter 6. So I've been preaching and most of the people have been responding, preaching the way King Ahaz did. They're making covenants with Assyria, they're not trusting me. But there is this minority, that holy seed that is in the stump. There were a few disciples, there were a few people that were responding to Isaiah. There were a few that were saying, yes, we want to hear about the Holy One of Israel. There were a few who were walking in confession and in repentance, just like Isaiah was. There were a few who were learning from Isaiah. And Isaiah says, okay, guys, bind it up, take care of this, protect this for me. There is a future generation who will listen, who will read this, all this stuff. So you take care of that for me. And in the meantime, I am just going to model before my people... The very trust that I am asking them to have. I will stand and wait quietly before God. Although he is hiding himself from Judah. Even though I cannot sense his presence with me. I am going to take my stand in faith before him. So that's his basic response. Preserve my teaching. Little group of disciples. You who are part of that holy seed that is in the stump. And there is a more faithful remnant that is coming later. So preserve the teaching for them. And then... uh, which means, of course, that he will continue to preach uh, and he will also take his stand in faith before God. He will model the faith that he's asking his people. But then the, well, I want to focus on these phrases. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. In, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, there are three children's uh, names, two actual children, but three names that I mentioned that are tremendously significant to the particular context. Last week we learned that uh, when... Ahaz and Judah was first told of this threat. God sends Isaiah to go preach the message to Ahaz and say, Stand firm, be strong, come, be courageous, 
If you will not stand firm in faith, you will not stand firm at all. But he, one thing that we didn't talk about last week was when he sent Isaiah, he sent to Isaiah, take your son with you. And his son's name was Shear Yeshub. Uh, Shear Yeshub in Hebrew means a remnant shall return. It was that holy seed that was, the, that was in that burnt out stump has now become personified in his son. Imagine... Every time Isaiah would speak to this boy the way any father or mother would speak to a child. Calling, uh, like we might say, Johnny or Mary. He'd say, Shear Yashub, come here, time for dinner. Shear Yashub, time to go to bed. Every time he's saying that, what is he saying? A remnant will return, a remnant will return. And he's building faith within his heart. Yes, I am preaching and the majority is getting hardened. But there is a remnant that is going to be saved by grace. And of course, you can imagine the effect on the boy. <laughs> Every time to have that, he's going to be it's going to increase the chances that he will be part of that holy remnant. And so there's the, that child is important. I and the children, I'm going to take the stand of faith before God. I want this child next to me. <laughs> no wonder he said, take the son with you. Because even as he was going to preach to Ahaz, God knew that Ahaz was going to reject that. And any preacher could be deflated with that. But he says, there, a remnant shall return. Now the second son's name is much more complex. Chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. And I went into the prophetess and she conceived, that is his wife, and she bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahar Shalal Hashba, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, which was part of the alliance against Judah, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now this phrase, Mahar Shalal Hashba, is more an impressionistic name rather than a grammatical name. It, 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 literally, it translates into four words. Speed, spoil, haste, booty. What's going on? What, why would you give a, a name like this? <laughs> well, uh, tonight, there's a Super Bowl, right? Some of you are football fans, know the Super Bowl's on. Now, can you imagine if one of the teams, let's say the Saints, were rather than focus on winning the game, were beginning to think about the ticker tape parade that was waiting for them. They're likely to end up losing the game. They've got to win the game first. But on the other hand, if the Saints were playing a high school football team tonight, they don't have to pay much attention to the game. They can be thinking totally about the celebration afterwards because the game's going to be over so fast, they, they can think about the booty. That's the idea behind these four words. Basically what God is saying to us is, don't worry about this coalition between Damascus and Israel. The Assyrians are coming with such speed and with such haste and their conquest is so guaranteed they're already thinking about the spoil. So what does this boy's name say to Isaiah? He says, don't be afraid. You don't have to worry about any alliances. Samaria is going to be wiped out. So while the name of the first boy reminds him that there is a remnant even though the majority is rejecting his preaching, so keep at it, Isaiah. The name of the second son is saying, don't worry about all these military threats. God will take care of it. No wonder he says, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Now, but there's a third name, not a third child yet, but a third name, which is implicit in Isaiah's words and which carries a tremendous amount of significance as well. Again, let's go back to last week for a minute. When God was through Isaiah saying to Ahaz, be strong, be calm, be courageous. He also said to Ahaz, remember, the stakes are so high, you can ask me for any sign that you want. And remember Ahaz said, no, I don't want a sign. Because it was a cover up for, he did not want to obey God. And he didn't want any signs being fulfilled. And then God said, behold, I will give you a sign. And we didn't spend much time on that sign last week, but now we should. 
He said, I will give you a son, a virgin will conceive and you will call him Emmanuel. Now we know in the light of the New Testament, and we'll look at it next week in detail, that that promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew tells us that. But if that was the only significance of that promise, what is it doing 800 years before? You can't say it's a prophecy, it has to have sense in the context too. In the context of these people facing this military threat, that promise would have meant absolutely nothing to them if that's all it meant. It had to have local significance. And I think the local significance is fine by looking at this promise of the second son. Mahershala Haspai says, And I went into the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name. The structure in the Hebrew language is exactly the same as Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will bear a son, will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. The prophetess will conceive and bore a son, and you call his name Maharshalal Hashba. Therefore, the immediate fulfillment of that statement was in the birth of this boy. But now he also carries, therefore, the implicit name Emmanuel, which is God with us. What is that saying? So the name Maharshal al-Hashba communicates to Isaiah not only that the Assyrians are coming with a certainty of context so don't worry about Samaria, uh, don't worry about Syria, they'll be gone before this boy can say father or mother, which means in less than 18 months. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Damascus was sacked in less than 13 months, I think, from this time. But it's also a promise to Isaiah that even though, remember he said, even though God seems to be hiding his face, I cannot sense his presence But Emmanuel is here with you. So now there's a third significance of that name. Shi'ar Yashub is a reminder to him that a remnant is being preserved. Maharshal al-Hashba is a reminder to him that the Assyrians are going to take care of Samaria and Syria, so don't worry. And Emmanuel says to him, even though you cannot sense my presence, I am still here. But there's a deeper significance of Emmanuel that we will see in the next verses in Isaiah. You see, one danger, especially when there is a godly remnant in the midst of a majority that is not walking with God, a huge danger for that remnant is to take the credit for themselves. That we might somehow think that these people are better than the others. Or that somehow Judah is better than the northern kingdom of Israel. That's why God is acting on their behalf. No. We will discover that the remnant was preserved by grace. That it was really ultimately had nothing to do with the fact of Judah being better or the remnant being better than the others who didn't believe. It was God's sheer work of grace in preserving that remnant. Where do we get that from? Look at the next verses in verse 5. Because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, that's that stream from outside that was the water supply that looked so vulnerable. It became a symbol of faith. It was weak, but God's weakness was stronger than the strength. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, the river Euphrates from Assyria, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and will sweep on into Judah. This is, of course, what God said. You trusted Assyria. Therefore, Assyria is not only going to take care of Israel and Syria, they're going to come after you as well, Judah. But it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. The water's coming, but only up to the neck. I don't know about you, I'm not a good swimmer. But I think I can handle it if I knew the water's only going to come up to my neck. It's not very comfortable, but it's better than over my head. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Yes, Judah is going to be judged for your unbelief. But the water is only going to come up to your neck. 
He won't destroy you completely. In fact, this, that nation of Judah survived Israel for nearly 265 years before they were eventually taken into captivity by Babylon. And why? Look at the last words. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. This is what Assyria did not know. For all its pomp and all its majesty, it did not know that Judah belonged to Emmanuel. And because it was Emmanuel's land, your water will own. I will tell you how far you can go, not one inch further than that. What, see, now, now you take a look at all these three names and you see how powerfully significant they are. That's why Isaiah says, my response of faith, I'm going to stand before God even though he's hiding himself. I and my children. Because they represent the concretized promise of God. Shear Yeshub, a remnant will be there. So keep preaching Isaiah. Don't worry about the fact that the majority are not listening to you. Maher Shalal Hashba, don't worry about Assyria. <laughs> and then Emmanuel, God is with you and he will limit the fury of Assyria against you as well. So that's God's message to Isaiah and his response. What does it say to you and to me? I guess in the first instance it is speaking to us. By the way, that's why he can be pretty bold in verses 9 and 10. This is what Isaiah says to Assyria. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Emmanuel again. As I was looking at this text, particularly Wednesday is the day that I spend most of, in fact, all of Wednesday just basically getting, is the heart of my study time and my preparation for the message. And I was, as I was thinking about these and working out all these ideas from the text, I was, God really, really spoke to me and said, this is, first of all, I'm speaking to you, Sunday. Because Isaiah was a leader. This was God warning Isaiah. This was Isaiah as a leader responding. And so in the first instance, this text is speaking to all of us who are leaders. Staff members, elders, all of you who are in any kind, any way involved in leading ministries in this church, lay leaders of youth ministries, lay pastors, those of you who are involved in leading parachurch ministries outside this church but are associated with our church, you're commissioned and sent out, you're part of our local missions team. All of us in any kind of leadership, I think this is first and foremost a call to us. And there are several things from Isaiah's response, God's word to Isaiah's response that at least God spoke to me about and I'm setting them before you. First of all, we need to recognize the danger of being sucked in by the prevailing chatter and wisdom. Let us not think we are impervious. We can be swayed if we are not careful by all the chatter that is going on around us. It doesn't mean we stick our heads in the sand and be unaware of what's going on. Secondly, we're called to believe in the presence of the Lord among us, Emmanuel, even when we can't sense it. We cannot afford to be swayed up and down by how we are feeling about God's presence. There are days when I am electrified when I am standing here preaching. There are other days when I feel nothing. I can't trust either one of those. But I can trust Emmanuel, God with us. Leaders are called to believe in His presence. Thirdly, heed the strong warning to fear the Lord of armies. Focus on His grandeur and magnify Him among the people that you lead. You need to become solidly theocentric in the way in which you lead. However lead, whether you're, whatever text you're in, you need to know who God is. The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. Fourthly, study and teach the word of God that has been preserved for you. Some of you are aware that from last September till this January, the Royal Ontario Museum was uh, um, exhibiting the Dead Sea Scrolls. 21 fragments of Isaiah were found and the most outstanding of them all was called the great Isaiah scroll that was found in the first cave. A complete copy of Isaiah. 
Isn't that amazing? <laughs> God preserved that document for us for over 2,000 years. Probably 2,800 years. Literally this happened. Bind it up and seal it up and preserve it for my remnant. God had you and me in mind when those words were written. The more, and the more amazing thing about that was not just that that text had been preserved for nearly three millennia. But until that time, the oldest copy of Isaiah that was available to us was called the Masoretic text, which was 900 AD. This Isaiah scroll was dated about 100 BC. In other words, this one discovery jumped a thousand years back in time, closer to the original. I don't know how many times Isaiah must have been copied during those times. And when they compared the two, the Masoretic text with the Dead Sea Scroll text with the Great Isaiah Scroll, there were hardly any differences between them. So he preserved it not only physically, he preserved its accuracy over that period of time. Now tell me something, what does that say to how important the study of Isaiah is? If God would take such pains to preserve... You know, when I realized that this week, I said, God, I don't care how long it takes me to finish Isaiah. I'm going to go through the whole book. You preserved it for us and for our church. What does it mean for you to take those study guides, leaders, and pour into them? Why? Because this book magnifies God. The great is the Holy One of Israel among you. And then, I think it needs to begin in our homes. I and my children, said Isaiah, will take our stand before you. The life we live as families is the way in which leaders communicate. It means their marriages, their children. So structure our homes so it is evident to all, in spite of all our human frailties, where our faith, hope and desires lie. It is to join Joshua and say, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways, one of the ways I think Isaiah indicates to us is in the very names that we choose for our sons and our daughters. Not because they are cute or they are clever variations on popular names. But because of what they represent in terms of what we believe about God. And what that message communicates to them and to us. No, they will not be supernaturally ordered signs and portents like Isaiah's were. But in a derivative sense, they can be. Our families, the way we order them, the values that we communicate and try to live out, whether the rest of the people like them or not, approve of them or not, is the way in one of the key ways in which we lead in our communities. And it has nothing to do with being perfect families. That's arrogance. Look at me, we're great. By the way, but be careful of the other end too. Oh, who am I? That's just as much pride because both of them focus on yourself. This is just simply to live out your life as families. Regardless of whether anybody notices you or doesn't. If they notice you, fine. If they don't notice you, that's fine. That's not the issue at all. But as for me and my house, I am standing with my children before Almighty God. And so leaders are called to do that. Now, what about the people? Isaiah has a message for the people too. Judah's response. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. The first thing that Isaiah says to them is, 
The call still is, be part of this godly remnant. Remember last week I told you how even the structure of Hebrew poetry points us to where the focus of the text is. If I had time to unlock the structure of this section for you, it points to this godly remnant. That's the focus of this text. It is a call to the people of God to say, we want to be part of this remnant saved by grace. A a part of this remnant that is characterized by the fear of God, the presence of God, and the word of God in our lives. Now specifically, they were charged to not go to the mediums, the necromancers, those who consult the dead. What was happening there? He was warning them to be careful, not only of popular opinion, but of popular religion and superstitions as well. Not just the conspiracy business, but also all these mediums and whatnot that that promise to give you some control. Instead he says, test them. To the law, to the testimony. Test them to see whether they, what they are saying to you is according to the law of God or not. According to what Isaiah has been preaching. According to what their own books of the Bible, which they had now, the Pentateuch and, and the Psalms and others. By this time it was part of their heritage. He said, don't go to the mediums and those people who are chirping and chattering. When, you, when you're worried about the future, when your heart is shaking, that's not the place to run to. Test what they are saying by what the word of God says. So be careful not only of popular opinions but also popular religion and superstition. And he says, and if these people don't speak according to God's word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a veil reference, the term darkness is a veil reference to the fact that often the mediums and spiritists were consulted in dark rooms. So basically, Isaiah is saying in a wonderful irony, you want darkness, I'll give you darkness. (laughs) Not only darkness in your understanding, you're going off into the darkness of exile as well. So that that was the uh, response of the people. Isaiah said what he was going to do. That was the challenge to the leaders. And then the, the challenge to the people was be this godly remnant. Be careful about popular religions and superstitions. Test them all by the word of God. So what does it say to you and me? If that was a strong call to the leaders, what is a strong call to the people? For you, it's the same thing. Uh, when the circumstances of life are such as to set our hearts shaking, if we leave God out of the equation, we're going to look for something else to give us a sense of control in our lives. Because that's what's destabilizing us. So we want to get control back. The very first temptation in the Bible was essentially this. When, God, when Satan said to Adam and Eve, No, 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 you can eat the fruit from that tree. Because in the day you eat, you will become like God. You will know good and evil. What was that? It was a temptation to independently define what is good for you. Apart from God. And as Larry Crabb put it in a way that I've never forgotten from the day I read it. It is the passion to define and control. To define apart from God what is good for you and then desperately try to control circumstances and people to get what you think is good for you and avoid what you think is bad for you. This passion to define and control is probably the fundamental manifestation of sin in our lives. It works out in our marriages, in our parenting, in the church, in the community, in the world. And this is the warning. And it comes to the fore even more in times when there is danger. When there are external circumstances or whatever it is that sets our heart shaking like trees in the wind, we want to be able to control. 
And he says, be careful. Be careful that you do not try and do this apart from God. By the way, this is one reason why all kinds of modern day sophisticated, educated people who think themselves too clever to believe in the miracles of the Bible fall headlong for all the hodgepodge, superstitious, religious nonsense that we see around us. Why? Because it promises a way to control your life apart from God. And that's always extremely attractive. So he's warning us, be careful. Instead, what should be our watchword? To the law and the testimony. It's God's word by which I am going to live. It's God's word by which I'm going to test all these other things. No matter how wise they may seem to be at this time. No matter how much control they're promising to give to me. I'm going to test them by the word of God. And then thirdly, look for and follow the Isaiah leaders among you. Who will we follow? Even if we don't get taken in by mediums and spiritists, and most Christians won't, how easily we fall prey to, to leaders that are more known for their charismatic appearance and their ability. And young people, if you're here, so much, so often you make that same mistake. You, you follow the leaders that are the most popular, that are the most with it. Instead, young and old, the call is to, is to follow leaders like this. Is to look for and to follow leaders like this. Let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you like our fellowship to be characterized by leaders at all levels like this? Wouldn't you like our people to be people like this? So what's it going to take? All through this week, in a text that is not from Isaiah but which I think has everything to do with it. God has been impressing upon me Jesus' words, apart from you, you can do nothing. I was struck, at the, I guess at the feeling level, like I have not been for a long time, with the word nothing. He didn't say, apart from me, you can't do anything important in life. He didn't say, apart from me, you can't do most things in life. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. I wonder whether we really believe that. Because if we believe that apart from Jesus we can do nothing, we'd be praying a lot more. And so, I've issued the strong call to leaders. Number one to myself. Can I do it? He said, no. I want you to be this kind of a people. Are you going to be? No. Not apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we cannot be leaders or people like this. So I'm going to ask you very specifically. During solemn assembly, our church every year does an amazing job of saying to Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. As John Piper said, prayer is a translation into a thousand words of a single sentence, apart from you, I can do nothing. But something seems to happen between January and February, and we think for the next of the 11 months, we can do it by ourselves. I, I don't know how else to explain the fact that 200 to 250 people jammed this room for five nights in a row seeking God, and then from February on, it just spirals back down to 30, 40, or 50 people once a month. I would just encourage you to say, I'm going to reverse that tendency this year. Recapture the same spirit of desperate dependence upon God that you felt during solemn assembly. And you feel every year. Praise God. And join us tonight. This is our first concert of prayer after solemn assembly. Join, I'm, we're going to put this same overhead up, and we're going to pray. That God will make leaders like this. 
We're going to put this overhead up and we're going to pray that God will make followers like this. And then we're going to be praying for our missions conference and, and several other things as well. But we're going to join with together and say to God, I believe you, Jesus, when you said, apart from me, I can do nothing. That's why it's so appropriate that after a, a message like this, we can partake in Holy Communion. Because this is Him feeding us with Himself. <laughs> this is not experiencing Christ uh, intellectually or through the um, orally as we listen. This is experiencing Christ by actually partaking of Him. This is a mystery. Theologians have argued for 2,000 years and still don't know what exactly Jesus meant when He said, This is my body. This is my blood. They, like us, are all good at arguing and fighting with one another. Luther and Zwingli had a huge argument over this. Even pounding the tables. That's not what we're called to do. We're just simply called to let it grip us. We can attempt to grasp Isaiah. But really what's happening is Isaiah is grasping us. We can attempt to understand these elements. But really what's happening is they are getting a hold of us. And so I'm going to invite those of you who are going to be helping serve the elements to make their way to the front right now. And the choir is going to be coming and leading us. An invitation to this table of peace. But we are going to continue to say to Jesus, apart from you, I can't do anything. Apart from you, we can't do missions. Apart from you, we can't influence our community. Apart from you, I cannot lead my family the way you are asking me to lead. And so Jesus, feed me. You are bread, you are drink indeed. So let us come and eat in faith. Listen as the choir sings and prepares our hearts. For my benediction today, I, you know, you are the people, part of the people for whom Isaiah's scroll was bound up and sealed. This is my blessing for you. May you be a people whose watchword is to the law and to the testimony. I want you to raise your hand and say that. To the law and to the testimony. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.